Welcome to the True Field Test Podcast, brought to you by the HMC Network. For over 10 years, the HMC has been producing award-winning popular podcasts, digital content, and events. Visit the HMC at the HMCnetwork.com. Hello, everyone. This is Sarah Mason, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Sergio Panero and Cutter Stevens. Howdy. Hello. This is the inaugural episode of True Field Test Podcast. True Field Test Podcast from creatives for creatives, filmmakers, cinematographers, editors, post-production supervisors, and other storytellers putting gear through real-world tests, reviewing products and workflows, and talking industry insights. How about that? Sounds good. How about that? So we're going to take this in a couple different segments focusing on the production side of things and the post, but the entire workflow, uh, two segments, Filmmaking Essentials. And Sergio, you want to introduce the one that's going to happen today? Uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about the market out there for uh, anamorphic lenses for DSLR and mirrorless camera systems. Great. And Cutter, you're going to be talking about? Well, I want to talk mostly about the landscape of deliverables that one has to think about now, even before you start production for whether you're going to streaming or to theaters or to what have you. Uh, you have different deliverable needs. Some of them are consolidating. Some of them aren't. Uh, so just delve into that. Great. So before we get into these two different areas, let's talk just a little. We just want to introduce this podcast and say why we're doing it. And You guys have anything to share on that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's important that people are educated on this stuff because – Way too many, especially independent films, uh, don't plan for the whole thing. Well, when you say and people, who who's our audience here? I'd say it's you, Sergio. It's people like me yes. who shoot stuff and make stuff and want to get stuff out there. Creatives. Yes. Creatives. Yes. I'm one of them, but not really. You're one of them, but you're also an engineer. Yeah. I, I, I'm creative in getting the job done, but... Can't tell a story for the save my life. Well, that's okay. There's a lot of storytellers who need your help. Exactly. You're the people that we bring our stuff to, and then you tell us why it's broken or we didn't do it right in the first place. <laughs> yes. And then we have to go back and maybe try and fix it, or you fix it for us. Oh, uh, it's the worst. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm also going to talk a little bit about kind of a broader entertainment uh, news and what's happening in our world. Uh, specifically today, we're going to talk about... It's award season, it's tis award the season, season. <laughs> uh, and a lot of nominations came out. The SAG Awards came out today, the Eddie Awards, which are the editors, um, the ACE um, Editor Awards, Production Designer Awards came out, the ASC, the Cinematographer Awards. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that and how it all kind of connects to this. Production Design Awards is going to be pretty interesting this year. I That's think. interesting. I agree. Uh, so let's start it off with Sergio Panero with anamorphic lenses for DSLR and mirrorless cameras. Okay. So it's sort of a bit of, I guess I kind of want to say the holy grail for filmmakers on a low budget, low, very low budget, is has always been achieving that cinematic look, right? You want to have it, look, and everyone, so many people that I know at least, reference things like Blade Runner. How mm-hmm. you get that awesome, like, widescreen and you know the background elements just have that vertical bokeh bokeh whatever High you want to call it the blacks High. are black the yeah. whites are white and, and it just looks like movies mm-hmm. and we've 
we growing up on movies like those shot on anamorphics, shot at the two three five cinemascopes and all that. That's what we especially identify as being particularly cinematic. Not that the other things are not, but those ones are like cinema ultra, right? Yeah. And that has always kind of bled into when the DSLRs took off. Uh, there was a huge market for getting that look. How do you get that look? Well, so there were film look essentially. Film look, yeah. Uh, you know, we want it to look like those movies that we grew up with, and and but get it on a budget that w- doesn't mean we have to spend a hundred thousand dollars just to get a lens. And there were lots of solutions. There were lots of things that were offered. The very early days of this, it was mostly anamorphic adapters, and it, to be honest, is mostly still that. I would probably say maybe what seventy-five to eighty-five yeah. percent of and the market. Even when people were shooting on film, this was still the case. You know. Do you need that Zeiss Prime, or can you adapt a wide-angle lens or whatever? Just, you know, looking at a sensor is the same as looking at a cell of film. Yeah. It's, you know, how do you... Some filmmakers are really talented as far as getting that look. Some aren't. But, you know, I guess what the the case is, is it possible? Yeah. How do you get that? Film film and digital. I mean, there's still filmmakers who are purists about film, like Tarantino. Woody Allen just went to digital recently. They're dying, but they, I I don't know. I I, I think that look of film, there's a big difference between who could make what work when you're still dealing with film versus duplicating a a film look with digital. Well, I agree. And the highest end cameras are, you know, the highest end for a reason. And they can duplicate that cinematic feeling i guess it's more of a feeling you know and also depends on what you look you know whether you're looking on a you know really nice projector you're looking on a television with hdmi right i mean but and that's what we wanted you know we as those low budget you know running gunners and the guerrilla filmmakers we want to make our films the cameras are now accessible to us for the first time or not the first time more so now than ever before uh but we still want that look and how do we get that look and so there was a lot of those taking projection anamorphic projection lenses mm-hmm. attaching them to DSLRs via, via a plethora of equipment that was being created and sold <laughs> from you know clamps to oh, rings God. Yeah, to I remember seeing some of these rigs <laughs> fabricated you know uh, step downs and things like that and and that was the yeah. big thing and I have a couple of those yeah, I use nice, I like never six foot lens of yeah. different adapters oh, yeah. you're going <laughs> and I I used I used them I never actually used them for a project because I could never get them to the point where you could get it functioning as well as I would like. There was always a bit of softness. There was always, which I know that that's probably natural to anamorphics in general, but way more softness than probably was even allowable or you wanted to allow. Right. Um, and so that was it. It was adapters. And, and just recently in the last few years, you've got People now kind of coming around and manufacturing lenses, which was the, the, the thing for me. It's like why a company that manu- would manufacture an anamorphic lens that people could slap on a DSLR or a mirror- mirrorless camera and just go, to me, would clean up because everybody wants – who doesn't want that, right? And so that's now kind of happening. And you had companies like SLR Magic and um, – uh, let me see. There's SLR Magic did, I think, the first ones that came out, or one of the first ones. And the interesting trend that I'm seeing with these lenses is they come out, but they're all micro four thirds. Okay. So they're not even full frame lenses. 
And that, I think, is the biggest, yeah. you know, strike against Why? the lenses. Why? I don't know. And I think it has something to do, my guess, it has something to do with, I, I think if it were, anamorphics must present some sort of a uniquely difficult problem to manufacture for a for cheap and b for these kinds of systems where there's a lot of um, maybe a lot of adjustments that need to happen and somehow a micro four thirds or an ASPC sensor crop lens is easier to make than in a true full frame anamorphic. Well, just from an engineering standpoint, uh, there's a couple things. One is these DSLR style cameras are still being designed for shooting still images. That's mm-hmm. kind of their main mm-hmm. audience. The fact that you're now able to shoot, you know, raw and video and everything else, um, you know, various codecs, et cetera, is a bonus, but it's still, you know, not their main focus for DSLRs, I think. Whereas For main customer? Yeah. So someone like Sony, you know, for instance, they have their old A-Line, which does great work on video and still but it's not designed for canon though i mean i mean i'm curious about because there were for several years i'm thinking like 2010 was a really big moment like that whole era that there was dslr it was their moment yeah Yeah. and so has that moment gone is that for canon or in general in general uh, I don't. I don't know that it's gone. It might be morphing more into. You've got cameras now that because Canon was almost the only name right. out there. So I think now you've got companies like Blackmagic that are taking with their pocket cinema camera. They're taking the things that people loved about DSLRs, mirrorless cameras, the form factor, size, yet sensor shape, all the sensor size, and they're taking that and kind of competing with those other companies. But they are not. Stills. That, I mean, no. I think you can take stills with them. Can you? Uh, I think so. You but, can. Yeah, but, but they're, it's clearly not their focus, and well. and they want to give you something that's dedicated to filmmaking. Uh, I believe the pocket cinema camera is a micro four thirds mount, and maybe that's why you're seeing these lenses come out because they're trying mm. to hit the largest uh, markets out there. And so <laughs> it could maybe it's not a, a financial thing or an engineering thing to the lens itself creating the elements. But actually, the what's what what mount and what size are we going to hit the largest amount of cameras? Exactly. For? Yeah. Because a lot of filmmakers, you know, regardless of whether they take stills or not, are using these SLR style cameras for everything. And you're speaking the early days, 2010, when Canon was coming out. The other big thing around that time was codecs became efficient enough to actually record onto micro SSDs and stuff. So MPEG-2, MPEG-4, H.264, what have you. And that was the big kind of breakthrough for using these cameras where you could actually capture a significant amount of footage, for lack of a better word, you know, on these small micro SSDs. And they became cheap, too. Um, That's, you know, rather than having to lug around a giant hard drive, you know, just a couple of these things. Mm -hmm. Stick in your laptop, and you know you off to DIT you go. Um, yeah. So you know there's all that, but as far as Black Magic goes, I think everybody, I think everybody has a you know 
a wealth of lenses already, you know, in stock and floating around and in the rental market. And for, you know, even though they're shooting for that DSLR filmmaker crowd and shooting really towards making movies versus just, you know, taking stills or whatnot, uh, that kind of mount is, you know, widely used and everybody owns, say, those lenses yeah. or can rent them. But But if you are going for... You know, size films the, the size of the picture, size, yeah. or not even just anamorphic, but just in general, like you, you know, full frame lenses, full frame cameras are definitely I would put out there are more preferable necessarily yeah. than mm-hmm. a micro four thirds uh, or ASPS ASPC sensor, and oh. even now, so you're starting to talk about um, large format sensors, right? So we're kind of even moving beyond full frame just at the outset of things into large format. So now that that full frame kind of almost you know, if the full frame is sort of the in, in the understood middle ground or the what we're kind of mostly going for, then what does that make fi- the micro four thirds of the SPC? Because with like with my Sony camera, I can shoot AS APS-C crop, right? right? And that changes at least your gives focal you the length. right aspect ratio. Gives like. you the right aspect ratio. I could put. I think one of those lenses on the Sony camera and then shoot it on the crop and then be able to take advantage of the lens. But then you're also, now you're messing with focal length changes, right? Because yeah. now you're cropping in. So your 50 millimeter or 40 millimeter anamorphic lens becomes what? And now you got to do math. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And now it's like, what does that actually make my lens now? You know? And, right. and I could only imagine that down the road, if you're talking about VFX, if you're not able to accurately calculate what your focal length is going to be, it's a huge how do you compensate issue. for that? It's a huge issue. Right. So, so for my thing is it's like the, the ideal. What's the ideal, right? My thinking is it's an anamorphic lens made for DSLR and mirrorless cameras. Let's just say mirrorless because what? That's now more of the market. So mirrorless yeah, cameras, you're – The whole market. Yeah. So you, you make a full-frame anamorphic lens. And I think that there's, as far as I could tell and researching, there is nothing like that yet. And even Sony said they're get, getting there. They are? Well, I mean... Not, they, they are for their mid-range cameras. Right. They, I mean, they, they're not at the moment, but they kind of teased us with yeah, that a little bit. And that's a, a different sensor, though. Um, right. You know, it's not a four-third sensor. It's, right. So uh, they want it for full yeah. frame. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a three-inch sensor or whatever. Five-inch sensor. I don't know, depending on which model you're looking at. But those cameras will have full-frame anamorphic lenses, and they said they're not going to be stupid expensive, right? Uh, but, but what I do think- they mean by see? This is where like their definition of stupid expensive and my <laughs> definition of stupid expensive are very different. Yeah, and that's I'm where thinking under ten thousand. Okay, that's still say. stupid expensive. So because that's <laughs> the thing. I mean, when you're looking at the the running gun filmmakers, the the gorilla filmmakers, yeah. we're out there trying to shoot short films or even let's say micro, ultra low budget, minuscule budget features. We want we need everything in a much more agreeable price Which price is what? point what? Well, so even the regular lenses that you're talking about you know let, let's say uh, a, a good you know mid-range zoom mm-hmm. you know, not super telephoto or anything but just a zoom lens you know from 50 millimeter to 70 millimeter something mm-hmm. like that you know that's still going to cost you a couple thousand sure. for a decent one but now we're in the ballpark right right and that's where i think some of these anamorphics co- come in there's like the slr magic anamorphic mm-hmm. i think runs somewhere in the neighborhood of uh 
a little over two grand. Right. So yeah, it's on the high end for sure, and you're paying that premium obviously to get the anamorphic look. Uh, but at the same time, for that premium, shouldn't we get a full frame lens? Mm, fair. Yeah. Right. Is, so mean, is it a greedy thing? Or yeah. is it, oh yeah, absolutely. Because well, we're always going to want more it, for less. No, no, yeah. no. I'm not saying well. you. I'm saying no, me. The manufacturers. <laughs> oh well. I'm saying because you started off saying that they, it's there's maybe it's technically they're not able to do it. Are they able to do it? But they're not going to do it because well, this gr- is going to keep you guys on the hook for a while. Tough business for everybody, mm. and, and it's not cheap. The process is not cheap, uh, and doing an anamorphic for a small format camera or a small sensor camera is poses a few problems and it's probably not cost effective for them to do it on a large scale and they feel that um, they don't need to but, but the, you're saying you, you do need to like basically SLR magic yeah. or you want it you know, yeah they might do it because they are you know a, in a niche unique kind of space right. doing what they're doing so yeah someone like them will probably do it before someone like sony or canon or what yeah. have you do it and I don't, you know, I don't think it's going to be in that two thousand dollar range for something like that. Maybe in a prime type of example where you, you know, have it for a set focal length and stuff like that, it mm-hmm. could work. But it's still probably going to be in the five thousand dollar range. Well, so I found a company. <laughs> Whoa! Yep. So let me back it up. Before so the SLR Magic has their anamorphic lenses. There's this un- other company, I believe they're German, called Vazen, V-A-Z-E-N, okay. which also c- just announced or has an anamorphic lens. They run price point rise uh, around the same as the SLR Magics. Okay. So you're in which a couple is thousand a couple range thousand, yeah. thing. But this other company, which I think is called Sirui, S-I-R-U-I, okay. made an anamorphic lens for... 500 bucks. <gasps> no shit. That, <laughs> that is what I'm talking about. Right. Okay. okay. So it's not available yet, and they, so have, they have prototypes. information the on what it is? They, they do. They have some, some informations on it. Um, I can try and just pull it to, up here. I just want an idea. Of, all right, so this is $500. Is it a complete piece of garbage, or is it just garbage enough where you can use it? You know, which is important distinction. Right. Um, so, and like, I'm, I'm hoping for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the, so the deal with it is they are still only in a crowdfunding phase. Okay. They have prototypes. Um. They've launched a crowdfunding. Uh, so they've announced a 50 milliliter, 50 milliliter. millimeter. <laughs> Jesus, guys. Got, yeah. We're drinking too much coffee. <sighs> a 50 millimeter F18. Okay. That's. 133 lens. Okay. So that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. That I will take takes, that. That takes care of. That, you know, uh, 80% of shots, really. I mean... Where are they with their goal You're not going to do a lot uh, of movement. I don't even... To be honest, I don't even know if they've launched it. I think they're trying to... Uh-oh. Trying to... Uh, so get, we're a ways out from yeah, this. We're a okay. ways out, from but... This and being we, delivered. Maybe we can put a link up on, on yeah. one of the pages for what it looks like. But this is... And it the, the size of it is looks significantly less than what normal anamorphics tend to go right. to. Certainly less than the SLR Magic. Uh, the Vazen, I think, actually kind of also has a bit of a um, has a, has a bit more of a, a smaller uh, form factor to and, it. And just for everybody not seeing what I'm seeing, it's the size of your average kind of small telephoto lens. Yeah. Um, so we're talking what probably six inches, six to eight inches in length. I'd, I'd estimate, yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that. So it's very compact. You know, certainly designed for the SLR. Yes. And so that's where we are. And they've announced it. They do, Let's see if that price point changes. Um, 
if I go on the website, there's a buy now option, but that takes you to an Indiegogo page. Mm. It does so the so the campaign does seem to be active. Oh, and so check this out. Just so when you talk about um, market needs and demand, they put a five thousand dollar goal on their campaign, which seems low. That seems really low for grinding Maybe they're glass. Just, yeah. Uh, they've raised as of right now two hundred and seventeen thousand hmm. dollars, nearing on twenty eighteen two hundred eighteen thousand. Uh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Well, obviously, there's a market that needs it. Um, you know, and just to sum up again, the question, like many things, for that guerrilla indie market is, yeah. We know it's garbage. We know it's going to be impossible to deal with. But can you deal with it just enough to get something done? Or I could just put out there, what if it comes out and it rocks? (laughs) (laughs) What if it actually looks good? That has happened. (laughs) You know, like for the the original Canon SLR, you know, no one one thought that people were going to make good stuff with that camera Mm -hmm. 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And... I've seen some amazing stuff. So sometimes things come out and it rocks. Anyone out there excited about this, give us some feedback on it. Uh, You can go to our website, thehmcnetwork.com, and send us a message, comment on this link. Let us know what you think. If you've heard of this, if you have any other ideas, if you know of any others, let us know. The True Field Test Podcast is brought to you today by Broadfield Distributing. Broadfield has been serving dealers for 40 years and is your source for live production, live streaming systems, production hardware and software, and video storage. New dealers wanted. You'll love doing business with Broadfield because they make it easy to do business with you. Check them out at broadfield.com and tune into their live liquid lunch webinar every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern. That brings us to production workflows, deliverables for today's distribution. Well, it's my turn. (laughs) It's your turn. Um, I just want to really touch on that, the changing landscape of where your film or your story is going to go. You need different deliverables for different things and how people do not think about this when they're starting their productions. You know, just even in the producing budgeting phase, you should think about, you know, where does this need to go? What do we need to accomplish with it? So whether you're going to just YouTube or you're going to something higher end like Netflix or Apple TV or whatever, or just even iTunes, you need to think about what your deliverable is going to be, whether it's a DCP or an IMF or you just need a ProRes and don't really give a shit. But these are things that people don't think about, and when it comes time and they're done with their sound mixes or everything else, they're out of money. And uh, that's how films become orphans real quick. Yeah, that happens a lot more than people realize, too. It happens all the time. And, you know, that's one of the big calls I get is, you know, how can I do this on my laptop? Or how can I get it done for this film festival or something like that? And I have only got, you know, $15 left in my budget. <laughs> I need another 2000 So, you know, it, it's, it's one of these things that, you know, needs to be thought about. And as a producer and director, um, what's your experience as far as people 
Yeah, I think there's there's definitely the the potential to to trip yourself up because everybody focuses so much on production, yeah, and which getting those shots done. You have to. I mean, and that's and that I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it outweighs everything else, but it's certainly it's a hurdle that you need to pass, right? You know, and because it's so, it's one of the you know, aside from pre-production, it's one of the main hurdles. You know, you need to get it in, and and everything is going to be what your film is going to be is going to be decided in production. You're yeah. going to get your shots, you're going to make your day, or you're not. And if you don't, you're going to shoot more, you're going to spend more, and <laughs> then there's that slip, slippery slope, it's right? A- so. You know, taking it from like a short film standpoint, right? You budget for a weekend and you hope you can get it all done in that weekend. And if you don't get it done in that weekend, then you're scheduling another weekend that nobody was planning on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're hoping your your talent and your DP and your crew can all come back. And inevitably, they're not all well, of them going to be able to come back. I mean, in every production horror story, you know, there there there's always that like, oh, if everything went completely right, you know, the budget would be perfect. And yeah. that's never the case. There's, you know, the sound guy screws up, the cinematographer screws up, the yeah. DP screws up, whatever. You know, the actors can't act. You know, there's always something <laughs> that might be able to make a production run amok. But my point is, in pre-production, when you're thinking about this, I'm doing a short. I want this short to go to Sundance or what have you. Um, you know, we need this much for production we need this much for the editorial process sound editing what have you you know all the things that go to making your final film a final film and that's usually where the discussion ends they don't talk about i got to spend another eight thousand dollars on a dcp if i'm going to be showing at sundance because they require it and they have very specific requirements same thing for south by southwest same thing for every festival and uh you know, that's where things, you know, usually hit the road. So producers budget for this stuff. And now in the world of streaming, you have IMF, which has a whole different set of requirements like subtitles or different languages and different artwork for different regions. Um, all this stuff needs to be packaged in the right way. And, and for, it's not free. For some of the filmmakers that may not know this, why don't you briefly run through what an IMF is? And the differences between that and the DCP. Okay, well, DCP, which has been around for 10 years pretty much, is basically uh, a hard drive that you plug into a digital cinema projector. So that could be, you know, at a film festival, it could be at your local movie theater, but it's digital. And the DCP includes the actual film, uh, subtitles if necessary, and instructions for kind of metadata for different projectors so whether it's you know showing at the arc light or showing at cinemark you'll have different metadata to tell that projector how to make the film look also includes trailers and other crap from the studios (laughs) um but it's you know it's, it's very simple as far as what it needs to do so it's designed specifically for projectors an imf on the other hand is more designed for the streaming where it's a package that includes Everything you would need, so Netflix is streaming in the U.S., but it's also streaming in Korea and South America, etc. So, so it's, it's geo-specific. It, it, well, they want the IMF to include everything that they would need to encode and stream anywhere in the world. So, so you have to do it for them. And you have to do it for them. So 
Well, it depends. Sometimes you have to do it for them. They would like it if you did it for them. But if your project is awesome enough, they'll probably pay for it. How much um, would that cost? Right now, just even if, if you have all the elements, um, so that includes artwork for different regions and everything like that, uh, we're looking at, you know, 30 grand, you know, sometimes. Ouch. Really? Yeah. Well, there is, I will say, there is... Because I know some friends of mine who've made shorts and have put it up on Amazon Prime. Okay. And I think they do recognize the difference between studio pictures and like a shorts market. Yes, absolutely. And there are different requirements. There is still, still for now, different requirements where uh, – because I was looking at this as something to put up my last short when we're done with the festival runs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there is – they do break it down. You can, you can upload a file. Yes. You can upload key art. You can upload – they do have requirements on specific subtitles that you will have to get and right. generate. Uh, but I, it doesn't quite require, I think, the full IMF treatment. Yeah, for, for certain you know, shorts and different projects, yeah, you can upload stuff that's ProRes, for instance, or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, as long as it's in the aspect ratio that you shot it in type stuff, yeah. uh, things like that, they don't like a lot of re-encoding. Because, again, these guys are, especially in America, encoding this crap. To shit. I mean, you know, if it looks bad uploading, it's going to look really bad after they put it through their pipeline. Mm. So, especially for kind of studio type level productions, you know, you know, you're in an uncompressed JPEG 2000. You know, especially for HDR, uh, high dynamic range stuff. You know, EXR. Um, you know. Is high qualities you can do because they know that they're going to compress it to hell. Um, so yeah, for shoot uh, shorts, independent stuff, there's a lot of leeway um, as far as what they require because they know it's not going to be something they're going to show in every region that they have. You know, well, also, a, a footprint. In. Uh, but having they, been, they a, would love to if they could. Having been a festival director, I can tell you that a lot of it's just what we can get our hands on to actually you know, show the films, you know, a lot. There's uh, certainly Sundance has specific guidelines, yeah. but well, a lot festivals of regional are festivals pretty much are DCP just whatever. Yeah, what exactly. Um, yeah. But now festivals are, you know, look at Sundance. They got their own channel that they're going to start but streaming. But Sundance is a, is a, I know, but I'm just saying, we're talking about the average indie filmmaker sending out to but this hundreds is happening. of filmmakers. I mean, f- festivals. Yeah. This is happening though right now. Mm-hmm. So the, fi- the festivals themselves are going to have their own streaming eventually, all of them probably. How far uh, out do you think we are from that? Oh, five, ten years. You know, I mean, the big ones are going to start now. Right. You no, know, your Sundances, your Torontos, your South by Southwest. That's going to happen now. So you're saying anybody who's going to submit, like Sergio submitting his projects to any festival in five to ten years or so, although he'll be super famous by then, so it won't matter, um, it, they're going to have to consider this. They're gonna like, have that's to where con- everyone on an indie level is going to have to consider this. Well, you're going to have to consider it if, all right, I'm making this movie so Netflix will buy it. And they have, again, a footprint all over the world. Uh, Disney Plus TV has got a footprint already all over the damn world. Uh, so if you if you want them to buy it, they're going to want to have the ability to show it anywhere in the world. So these are things you do have to consider. If you're making it, I want to go to Toronto, 
you know, you're probably fine, you know, getting the picture done and and getting the DCP that they want. And hopefully later on, if it gets bought, you know, you can get some extra budget to get those other, you know, at, you know, at um, parts of the of the say IMF made, whether it's a sidecar for, you know, different language audio or again, extra subtitles, different artwork, you know, maybe you'll get that budget later and that's fine. That's, you know, but think about that in pre-production, you know, you know, we need to get to South by Southwest. We're doing a rock and roll documentary. You can get it done, but wouldn't it be neat if that rock and roll doctor documentary was in five languages and, you know, could be, be neat, but thirty k. I mean, so well, that's from, now. That's right. now. This is still kind of emerging streaming stuff. They're just still figuring out. Like, it took them a while to get DCP figured out. Um, and this IMF is kind of based on that kind of packaging structure. So right now, it's really expensive. When DCP first came out, like Technicolor and a couple other companies were doing it, and it was yeah, like thirty grand to do a DCP. Yeah. Now it's like eight grand. So, and I think the landscape will in the five to ten years that it might take to to get to that point, the landscape may change again. There may maybe IMFs won't even exist anymore, and they'll yeah. have some new file format that yeah, we'll be is able to, even you know, more, you know, get our movies beamed directly into our cortexes. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, and have the, tactile sensations and yeah, stuff yeah. like that in the metadata. Yeah. You know, who knows? Yeah, but you know, but for those those. Lower budget films and projects, shorts, features. Uh, why don't you talk about a little bit? My question, which I've received a lot too, and, and I have talked to people about, is creating that DCP. Even now, because so much of that is still driven with festivals, the DCP requirement. Um, there's Raptor D- DCP, and then there's also the Easy Easy DCP. Yeah, right. And, and why don't you talk a bit about the pitfalls? Like, because I've honestly heard that it works great from some people, and then I've heard from other people, no, it did not work great at all. Well, and so, why it, would that be? It depends on the requirements that whoever is asking for in the deliverable. So, you know, some some places are showing stuff on, you know, off a of Xbox or a PlayStation into an HDMI thing just from a blu-ray type thing and th- there's no requirements for that you know so you can oh, do yeah. it with an easy dcp or or with adobe or what have you uh but when uh like a festival is actually using digital cinema projection which involves a linux server and a projector with specific card to actually drive you know what they or what the original director and, and cinematographer want the film to look like, whether you know from you know the HDR or not, and this and that. So there's metadata in that DCP to tell that projector how to behave, and if that doesn't work, the DCP doesn't pass QC, and you know you're screwed, and you don't get into the festival. Mm. So in those cases, yeah, you do need to. Use maybe DaVinci or, you know, Clipster. So DaVinci has that capability. Uh, It does to an extent. Um, You know, the free version doesn't. Right. But, uh, you know, and uh, so, you know, getting that metadata for those specific, you know, projectors, you know, and each place will have 
will give you instructions and a list of what you need in your DCP. Yeah. And that's why it's usually, you know, you have a crash case with a, you know, a, a drive carrier or a USB drive or something like that to, to get it. So it's, you know, it can be read by the DCP server and ingested and have all the little pieces that it needs, whether it's a title or a trailer or what have you. And, uh, you know, then the server can do it. But if it isn't read by the server correctly, it's not going to work. But wouldn't it be in Adobe's best interests on their media encoder to want to make it so that their DCP output does pass QC? Because I'm thinking if, if they haven't figured it out now or if there's issues with it now, there should well, probably not be later, right? It's not easy. I mean, yeah. you know, it's not, it's not super easy. It's very technical. It's very expensive to develop stuff like that. That's mm. why... The software, like say Clipster from Rhodes and Schwartz, cost you know, hundred thousand dollars or more, um, because it costs a lot to develop. You have to hire good engineers, and you know you're dealing with heavy math. You're dealing with light and eyeballs, and you know you know how that is. Mm-hmm. You know when you're shooting on the other end, you're taking light in. This is putting light out. It's yeah. the same thing, and it's you know there's a lot that goes into it. So, who's doing QC? At festivals, though, seriously, I mean, it, big festivals, maybe. big festivals, right. big, big doing, festivals. They're doing but QC. They're using real projectors. They're doing stuff. Well, they're having requirements, but like what you're talking about is, uh, I, I well, mean, the I QC don't... is not is you know like color correction. I'm not talking about is this too bright or is this whatever. It's like is this in the right codec? Is this uncompressed enough or whatever? Is this, um, you know, does this have all the metadata that I need to make it look the way it's supposed to look? Uh, That's what these servers are looking for. They're not looking for whether it looks pretty or not. They're looking for can this be shown in this, you know, Mm -hmm. facility. That's the QC. So what's it going to cost just an indie filmmaker? You could probably do it for, you know, for something that, Again, doesn't have need encryption or anything like that. You know, you're probably under a thousand dollars for for a D, you know okay. a DCP that will work most places. So that's not bad. I mean, it's not bad when you're talking about making a film and you're you're looking at spending. I mean, obviously a lot of people try to make shorts for next to nothing. Yeah. So all of a sudden a thousand dollars sounds like a lot, but I would say a lot of short films, you know, fall under a pretty multi-thousand dollar up to yeah. 10 to 20 30 thousand dollar range and it's not i don't think it's unacceptable to expect no, that you'd want to put that money up front at the, it's at, at the something end something that will take a post facility you know a decent amount of computing time but we're talking about a day yeah. of work you know provided you have all the components that you need you know you have to compile it you know maybe transcode it you know, little yeah. things that sound like they're nothing, but to do it right, you know, it's not something that does not take skill, you know. Right. So I'm thinking a thousand bucks for, you know, if you have everything and that's all they got to do is put it into the package and onto a hard drive. Yeah. And honestly, that onus, I think, is on the filmmaker. Like we, especially totally when you're, on the, well, on the when producer. you're, well, yeah. And sometimes the filmmaker, most of the time, is the producer on the smaller stuff. Right. And, the, and you need to look at that going forward. Like you said, look look at it in pre-production. That's be my whole aware. point for this yeah. segment. Be aware of it and so that it doesn't catch you off guard at the end. Yeah. Just know that that cost is laying out there. And it should be thought about in the beginning so you don't get to the end and saying, crap, yeah. I need 
to raise another thousand dollars, let's say, yeah. which might not be easy at the last minute when you're three weeks from the festival. Yeah. And I mean, to your point, both your points, Sundance, Toronto, Tribeca, things like that, they will require a higher level of DCP, that yeah. kind of thing. But let's face it, not everyone's going to get into those. I haven't. Yeah. I've submitted to all those and I well, haven't gotten in. And so when you, if you don't, my thinking also at the yeah, time was, your point. let's yeah. wait to see if we get in. Let's have the cash. Yeah. Wait to see if we get in before we spend that money, right? Because yeah. there's nothing worse, again, when you're working on such a small budget, to spend the money to get that DCP, one, two, three thousand dollars $3,000, and then realizing your entire festival run, you didn't need it. Well, that's another point I'd like to make is you're right. So, yeah, you can use easy DCP or whatever and get something that will work on something, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe that's what you submit, you know, and they'll come back and ask you, all right, this doesn't pass QC or doesn't have everything that we need. Archive your original shit (laughs) every time. Yeah. Because that's another thing that happens is, oh, I had to erase this because I'm on another project or something like that. And then, you know, Sundance come back and, oh, we love your film. We need, you know, a better master. We need a better deliverable. And you better have that stuff still because, you know, you know, it's always better to go, go and have to do some recolor correction or something like that from the original master files mm-hmm. than from something that you proxied into something else. Right. So archive your shit, too, guys. <laughs> good points. Good, uh, good information. Yeah. Uh, so thanks guys. We're going to pleasure. This was fun again. Once again, well, we're not done yet. (laughs) We're going to, we're going to segue into a little bit of a discussion about award season. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, something happened this year that was interesting at the golden globes, which is no network show is nominated for anything. And (laughs) so that sort of feeds right into this discussion, which is, isn't network uh, television all like CSI now? Yeah, I mean it's the same. NCIS, well, CSI. it's the same old format. It, the, their sitcoms are in that same, you know, right. studio lap, you know, audience three Can camera, laughter. like what you know, kind of thing. It, everything's in the way it was from the beginning of TV. Really, they're still doing those formats. I mean, or, or like, and people you know, keep watching it. I mean, what was well, it? Thing, they wouldn't Bang do it. Theory. Well, they, they're not going to go down. They're going down swinging. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, they got to keep doing it because they want to stay in business. But they, I, I mean, clearly, and this is something we've been seeing for a while that, you know, everything's moving to, there's so much content and frankly, cable and streaming are putting out better content. That's clearly that's reflect, <laughs> reflected in this whole, you know. But, yeah. I mean, they're also operating on a, on, on a level that I don't think necessarily a show like a sitcom would necessarily be able to match right because they they're dealing with multi-threaded stories and arcs and and also limited let's talk let's talk about that like they're building shows hbo netflix i mean they're they're building shows to kind of come and go right what average season lengths and things like that tend to be in the single digits you know five or less yeah you're not seeing a lot of shows running for 10 20 years maybe we just obviously haven't gotten to that point yet but i don't even foresee shows i mean game of thrones was probably the one of the longest that i've seen well walking dead dead now i don't yeah. necessarily even count walking dead i don't know <laughs> i don't i don't know yes it does it sure uh Neither maybe on that's an outlier, but I feel like Walking Dead kind of straddles that line between the new uh, f- way of TV and the old way. Mm. Right? It's still 
to me uh, because they yeah, clearly dynamic, are. I mean, changing characters, changing story. Yeah, arcs, they're clearly blah, blah, going blah. for that ongoing thing. They're going to try to make this go mm-hmm. as long as possible. What, what, I guess what my point was is things like Game of Thrones and the shows you're seeing now have a finite life. They right. intended it to end uh, at a certain point, and they want and and they fully expected that it would be over and resolved within X amount of seasons. You know, and those those tend to be in the single digits. Your Seinfeld's, you know, it could be one season yeah. or it could be 10 or whatever it was. But I think that's also changing now that there are more more and more players in the streaming market, you know, especially now with Disney Plus, you know, Disney's yeah. got all their kids shows, you know, that used to go to ABC or whatever, um, used to go to broadcast, but that's kind of going away. I mean, broadcast is kind of going away. Yeah. I think people just hate cable companies and they're sick well, they of don't stuff want to being, pay for it. Well, they're sick of stuff being shoved down their throats too. They want to know. They, they want, want to pick, choose what choose they want to see at what time. Yeah. That's right. the other thing. I mean, the, all of this is because we've gotten to this point where we want what we want now. Yeah, and we, you know, yeah, and and you know, some people still like to watch things as a water cooler thing where they watch it Sunday nights and then they talk about it the next day. Yeah, but most people, yeah. Yeah, yeah, or Watchmen now yeah. or Westworld. I mean, mm-hmm. but those Sunday shows, shows. Yeah, but the Sunday shows, I mean, honestly, if you look at HBO's lineup now, I mean, really this year ended a lot of eras. Like, Endgame ended, I know superhero stuff is continuing, but it really was an end of an era. Mm. And yeah. Game of Thrones also was an end of an era. Like, we are now seeing a, a change. There isn't that, you know, um, FOMO, fear of messing out thing anymore, mm. or like the must-see TV. That's gone. And because, that's being reflected in these awards. I mean, yeah, you know, you're talking about the Golden Globes, which I think is one of the awards that actually gives a shit about quality versus... Are you kidding me? <laughs> the Hollywood Foreign Press? Arnold Schwarzenegger has a Golden Globe. I'm just saying. <laughs> they do care. More so than, say, I, I Emmy, think, which I is, think I think, they more like of a, a bought and sold thing. I th- that I agree with. But I think the Golden Globes likes shiny new objects. Yeah. And right. they like to give that... That, that even you know, Infamously, said, they do that. But but I don't think that they are I, that quality. I don't think Golden driven. Globes is alone either. And what we're going to be seeing is these... Sh- new streaming service shows that were designed specifically for Netflix and for Amazon and for Disney plus or what have you are going to be cleaning up the awards. Yeah. And yeah, they had their little, you know, two day theatrical run before it went on to Netflix, but like, well, now apparently it's gotta be two weeks, two weeks. Mm -hmm. Sure. There's a lot of pushback still from the old guard for that because they don't love the fact that, you know, you can have this limited, uh, you know, the- Steven Spielberg's been an outspoken critic of that, saying they're not wrong. I mean, because yeah, they're making something to be looked at in a theater, so it looks nice the way they envisioned it being shown, and rather than streaming out to every piece of crap television. Well, um, it's also like I-, I think we've gotten to a point now where TV and and theatrical film are- have blended. You know, mm. where in, I mean, certainly when I was in film school and then when I first came to LA in the mid 90s, 
you if you wanted to write for TV, you were a loser. If you wanted to write, you know, if you it was film. Yeah. If you were an actor in TV, you were lower class. Like there was a very definite split between the two. And then in the last decade, that's changed dramatically, where everybody started going to TV, and that was where more creative things certainly, or even more uncool, is going back and forth. You know. That's not uncool anymore, it's though. Not now it's the thing but to back do. Then, Look, Nicole yeah. it was Kidman is of. on a TV show. <laughs> like you never in a million years in those in the nineties. Yeah, if you made the you jump have to an film, A-list. you stayed there. Yeah, if you made the jump back to TV, you'd be doing dog food commercials and like <laughs> you know what I mean. Like so, that has changed so dramatically, and I, I really think now we're getting into this era where. People aren't going to the movies as like a thing to do anymore. They're going as an experience. Right. You know, and you're buying tickets two weeks in advance because you all want to go see Star Wars as an experience. So because theater is, you know, theatrical like is going away and people aren't going to the theater as much, what's going to be the difference between a movie watched on Netflix like The Irishman, which you really should see in the theater, and just watching any other TV show? I mean, Kids who are growing up today or being born today or even like, you know, those, they're not going to know the difference between a movie and a TV show. Mm. And to me, there's something sad about that. Well, do you think that's off? Like a creative format type thing where, you know, creatives are going to be writing for television, but, you know, they're going to be these kind of spectacular television like Game of Thrones or something um, versus a, a, a guy producing a movie which you know they want to be 90 minutes you know whatever 120 minutes blah 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 that's like a creative format choice i think more yeah but i i I don't the way we consume content now people will watch it in their homes they'll pause it They'll be distracted. Mm. They'll go upstairs. They'll go cook their dinner. They'll come back. Yeah, that was. There's no differentiating uh, between the format of a 90 minute thing and and like the format of a. I mean, you have episodes of certain TV shows that are longer. You know, it's like this episode's going to be longer. Yeah, Netflix released a whole thing where they were saying like the majority of people did not get through The Irishman on the first try. Yeah, and see, I mean, I feel I personally really like the film, yeah. and a lot of people have said it's boring. I do think it's something that should have been seen in but the theater. In a theater, you're kind of you are forced to not be distracted. You're yeah. forced, you know. You're forced. When you, yeah. When your phone rings, you you're an asshole if you answer <laughs> right. it. But you know, so in that in that respect, yeah, and I can see why filmmakers would be not necessarily pissed off, but concerned. Yeah. You know about all right. My movie that I put my heart and soul into is going to be looked on someone's phone versus, you know, at least initially. How do you feel about that? I think there's becoming a big split in why people go to the movie theater. I think we still have people that, like me, go because we want to see every detail in in pacing and uh, energy level mm-hmm. um the audience not experience is is yeah to me it's not about it's not about going to see something yeah seeing exciting it's great but for me it's about like it, it taking in the experience of watching the movie in this in the theater i think that is one way to go about it and, and you've got it that is attitude getting, in which is why you're a filmmaker yeah and it's getting <laughs> and that crowd is shrinking you know i, I yes think no it, it, it's shrink, but it's being certainly overtaken by the people that are going to be 
taken on a ride. And I think that that, for what Scorsese's, the controversy around Scorsese's comments in Marvel movies, I think Mm -hmm. what he was, my opinion about what he was trying to get at about the theme park comment is that you certainly make big budget tentpole films in a much different way than you make The Irishman. Right, of course. The Irishman is made for the cinema experience, and I think that's where he comes comes with that word like you know nobody is going to sit there and try to compare the irishman to endgame in no. in, in in its cinematic in uh quality and this argument same thing happened in the 50s when television came out mm-hmm. you know every filmmaker was losing their goddamn minds and so they started making things like the ten commandments and cleopatra these giant right spec- spectacles yeah and, you know, the same thing is happening now, you know, 60, 70 years later, um, where, you know, again, mediums are changing. So yeah. television came out in the 50s. Now we got streaming services and on demand and everything like that. And people are losing their minds thinking no one's ever going to go see a movie anymore. And that's, right. you know, and there might be, you know, overshooting things with, you know, like let's go with say John Carter as a giant bomb mm, that costs right, a lot right. of money. Um, but yeah, you know, there's going to be hits, there's going to be misses. But I don't think the movie going experience is going away. So yeah, yeah you might need uh, an end game to make a billion dollars or something like that. But that's not the goal for the majority of films. Yeah, you know, making a, you know, if you have a. $16 million budget or, you know, I don't know what the Irishman was, but yeah. it wasn't $100 million. Sure. Um, and it's, you know, if you make that money back and make a healthy profit for the studio, you know, whether it's $10 million for, you know, a $5 million film or, you know, what have you, that's absolutely fine in most business people's uh, you know, sides. As long as everyone gets paid, yeah. You know, so yeah. But I think the difference being that with the studio, the major studios, what they're doing now is that they're taking their multitude of eggs and they're putting that into much, many less baskets, many fewer baskets than they used to. They have and, to, yeah. And, and that's the thing. They need to now make it's it's much easier for them, or maybe it's a better, surer thing for them to make a movie that needs to make a billion dollars. Rather than making ten movies that need to gross a hundred million, and I think I, that, I think, I think that's, that's not. I don't think that's the case because you have more baskets now with you know different streaming services, and you do this little movie can theoretically be, be distributed to the whole world, you know, fairly sure. easily and fairly inexpensively, you know. But whereas before you had to but make does film it make prints, as much money? Huh? Does it make as much money? I think you know? it's going to make more money because you know, you know, you can distribute it to billions of eyes versus I can distribute it in New York and L and L A. But if you're a studio like say, for example, Warner Brothers, yeah. who does not, I mean, they have a streaming service, I think, but it's more for classic stuff. But uh, Warner Brothers does not well, have they got their, their now WB thing, which is yeah, got, but now you know, Titans not before, and, yeah, yeah uh, now. So going forward, maybe that will change. Yeah. But what I think is is important is looking at what they've had and. You know something like a their Justice League and their DC movies and all that kind of stuff. Um, they didn't have necessarily their own proprietary outlet for that movie, and unlike Disney, Disney did, does now as well. Yeah. Uh, but 
they still are beholden to what does Netflix want to give us for that movie? What does this other streaming service want to give us? Amazon Prime. What are they going to give us for that movie? So there's still they still need to make that recoup that cost. Yeah. But they're still it's whereas Disney Plus now they're taking matters into their own hands by self distributing essentially. Yeah. Uh, they're going to put their movies on there and they get to control. True, their but I, I still think you know there's going to be the you know you're not. Not every Disney property is going to be solely on Disney+. Plus. And it's yeah. not. I mean, actually, you can go on there. I was shocked because I thought what was going to happen when we were on a D-Day countdown. Mm. That, you know, all of a sudden, <laughs> everything would disappear from everywhere except it's on Disney+. Plus. But no. I mean, they're still showing. You can still get Marvel movies on Netflix. Ba- Black Panther's on there. You can still get them on Amazon Prime. You can still watch them on network TV. So I don't know if that's a licensing thing where they have them to a certain it's, time it, and then they're expired. Mm-hmm. I mean, or and then they're all going to be gone. I guess. No, I think they're. You know, they're no. just going to make up their. They're, it's going to be on them how much they charge for them. Exactly. And, yeah, and it's going to be on the other. You know, the Netflixes, the crackles, the what have you. How much they can pay for something, right? And you know, it's business, just like anything else. They have salesmen, and they have buyers. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm not going to go into all the nominees and everything because I don't really care. <laughs> no, I mean, I will say this. There's 50% one, of them are from streaming services they're all, or something like yeah, that. Yeah. You know? One thing I will say, because also the Eddies came out and the AS, you know, the ASC Awards, all the craftspeople, the production designers, those things to me are actually more interesting. Production design has gone awesomely right. through the roof. So I think that's one I'm going to actually pay attention to. Um, the AS, the... Uh, the Cinematographers Guild, for the first time, awarded two nominees. Um, two uh, two women were not got uh, nods, which is highly rare. Well, for a cinematographer, um, Polly Morgan and Dana Gonzalez were both nominated for ASC awards. And congratulations! Um, yeah. I also want to shout out Chris Seeger, uh, who was nominated for his work on Carnival Row, and I got to interview him, and you can actually see my article, which is up right now. <laughs> um, but also, just Joker got a lot of nominees right. you know, out there. I mean, c- we're seeing what the nominees for Oscars are going to be right now. Right. It's like, you know, every year you see... This is the five, and and it's and the Irishman. there's always that one sleeper, though. There's a sleeper, <laughs> yeah. and, but it's this year, it's the Irishman. Uh, Joker. The Joker, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Ford versus Ferrari, Jojo Rabbit, which is a great film. Jojo Rabbit Maybe that's is going to win. No, Marriage Story, and mm. then Parasite. And then Bombshell gets in there sometimes. In 1917? Yeah. 1917 gets in there sometimes. Parasite Motherless was Brooklyn. great a, if you can handle it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, but anyways, so thanks, guys. This was a great discussion, and I look forward to our our episodes. And I just want to thank our sponsor this week, Broadfield Distributing, your source for live production and streaming production, hardware and software, and video storage. You can visit them at broadfield.com and tune in to their lo- Liquid Lunch webinars every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And as always, visit us at thehmcnetwork.com. Thanks, everyone. Cheers. Thank you.